Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Don't torture yourself, listeners. That's my job. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 119, The Adams Family. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And a huge welcome to you all to Verbal Diorama, the creepy and the kooky, mysterious and spooky, the altogether ooky movie podcast. A huge welcome back to all of you wonderful returning listeners and welcome to brand new listeners who are joining us for the Adams Family. Thank you so much for being here. Basically, as I always say, no matter how you found this podcast, I'm so grateful that you have found this podcast. And hopefully, you'll find other episodes of this podcast that you will also enjoy. Before I start with the Adams Family, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened to the previously released episodes on Slither and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Slither has done remarkably well for a movie that actually didn't do so well when it came out originally. And Bram Stoker's Dracula, I mean, that version of Dracula is well known for its sexiness. And honestly, so is this movie. And this is an incredibly sex positive family movie. You can feel the sexual tension crackle between Gomez and Morticia in every scene. And The Addams Family, for me, is one of the great family Halloween movies. I watch it pretty much every year around this time of year. And it's also one of those movies that I've been holding off covering for a little while. I did think about doing it last October time, and I didn't. And I feel like now's the time to bring out The Addams Family. And I'm going to start with the trailer for The Addams Family. I know, darling. Children, put down that antenna. Uncle Fester, may I have the salt? What do we say? Now. Unhappy, darling. Oh, yes. Yes, completely. There's lots to learn. Good children. Scared. 
you doing? I'm going to electrocute him. I said no. Please? Oh, all right. Don't torture yourself, Gomez. That's my job. When a man claiming to be Fester, Gomez Adams' missing older brother, arrives at the Adams' home, the family is thrilled. But he can't recall details of Fester's life, claiming to have amnesia from being in the Bermuda Triangle. With help from lawyer Tully Alford, Fester manages to get the Adams clan evicted from their home to swindle the Adams family fortune, but this version of Fester starts to remember his previous life. We'll quickly go through the cast. This is an astonishingly brilliant cast. I am going to talk about the cast in quite a lot of detail later on, but we have Angelica Houston as Morticia Adams, Raul Julia as Gomez Adams, Christopher Lloyd as Fester Adams, aka Gordon Craven, Christina Ricci as Wednesday Adams, Jimmy Workman as Pugsley Adams, Judith Molina as Grandmama, Carol Stroyken as Lurch, Christopher Hart as Thing, Elizabeth Wilson as Abigail Craven, aka Dr. Greta Pinderschloss, Dan Hedea as Tully Olford, Dana Ivy as Margaret Olford, and Sally Jesse Raphael as herself. The screenplay for The Adams Family was by Caroline Thompson and Larry Wilson. It was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld and based on The Adams Family by Charles Adams. As of recording this episode, there is an animated Adams Family sequel out in cinemas called, unsurprisingly, The Adams Family 2. Charles Adams, the creator of The Adams Family, obviously, started the characters as one-panel cartoon gags which debuted in 1938 in The New Yorker. But it wasn't until production of the TV show that the characters were actually given names. Charles Adams' cartoons ran regularly in the New Yorker magazine until his death in 1988. In 1964, David Levy and Donald Saltzman created and developed a 30-minute black-and-white TV show based on Adams' cartoons, where Adams gave the characters names and personalities. The Adams family would be a close-knit, loving and wealthy family who just happened to appreciate the gothic and macabre. Enthusiastic patriarch Gomez would be madly in love with his statuesque loving wife Morticia, daughter Wednesday and son Pugsley, along with Morticia's uncle Fester and Gomez's mother Grandmama reside at 0001 Cemetery Lane with their butler Lurch and disembodied Ham Thing. It's worth noting that obviously in the original TV show, Fester was not Gomez's brother, Fester was Morticia's uncle. So, bit of a difference. And the famous theme was arranged and sung by Hollywood composer Vic Mizzy. Two seasons of The Addams Family ran from 1964 to 1968, with a special Halloween with the New Addams Family on October 30th, 1977. Their first animated appearance was in a crossover with the new Scooby-Doo movies in 1972. Also running from 1964 to 1966 was The Munsters, a similarly themed family show about benign monsters. Throughout TV and cinema, there have been rival ideas. Think of Marvel vs. DC, Armageddon vs. Deep Impact. 
While Charles Adams created his characters in 1938, The Munsters was based on the Universal Monsters of 1931 onwards. They just happened to debut within a week of each other in 1964 and were completely independent ideas of their own creators, David Levy of The Addams Family and Universal of The Munsters. The Munsters would achieve higher Nielsen ratings than The Addams Family, as well as being in syndication more, but it was The Addams Family that enticed producer Scott Rudin. Rudin was head of production at 20th Century Fox and he pitched to the studio an adaptation of Charles Adams' The Addams Family cartoons and his colleagues enthusiastically agreed that the cartoons would make a good film and set out to purchase the rights which were owned by Orion Pictures which had acquired them through their purchase of Filmway. Orion owned the rights to the TV show and held the option to make a movie version. After Charles Adams' death in 1988, additional rights to the characters had been left to his second wife Barbara Barb who he had divorced in 1956, but who continued to serve as Charles Adams' attorney and agent after their divorce, in which she received 75% ownership of the Adams family intellectual property. The Lady Colleton, referred to in the grateful acknowledgement, is Barbara Barb, who, when she remarried Henry Hopkinson, the first Baron Colleton, became Lady Colleton. Fox attempted to buy the rights from Orion and Barbara Barb, but failed. At the time, Orion wanted to make an Adams Family TV show and so wasn't willing to give them up. Barbara Barb would sell her remaining rights to Orion and because Fox had been so keen to make a movie, Orion decided they would make it instead. And to add insult to injury, they decided to also poach Scott Rudin from Fox. Caroline Thompson and Larry Wilson would write the first draft of the screenplay. Thompson had written Edward Scissorhands and would go on to write The Night Bed Before Christmas and Corpse Bride. Larry Wilson wrote Beetlejuice, that's episode 94 of this podcast, by the way. So both had experience with the slightly offbeat, macabre, darker side to family-friendly movies. Paul Rudnick would come on board for rewrites and would also go on to write the sequel, Adam's Family Values. It was originally intended to be unclear whether Fester was an imposter or not, but the actors strongly felt the movie needed to tell the audience he was the real Fester. And then 10-year-old Christina Ricci gave an impassioned plea to Barry Sonnenfeld to ensure that Fester was the real Fester, a decision that Sonnenfeld ultimately agreed with. Speaking of the director Barry Sonnenfeld, he actually only got the job when Tim Burton declined it due to his Batman return schedule. Sonnenfeld had never directed before, but he had been director of photography on movies like Raising Arizona, Big and When Harry Met Sally. He had just finished shooting Misery when producer Scott Rudin gave him the Adams Family script to read. Rudin asked Sonnenfeld if he could get Orion to hire him as director, would he do it? He answered yes, and the stars aligned in his favour. Well, to a degree, because the shoot itself was incredibly stressful for Sonnenfeld. He lost £13 in the first 10 weeks. He would continually vomit due to nerves. Three weeks into the shoot, due to working on 15 minutes sleep a night and using cappuccino as a food substitute, he passed out and they lost a half-day shoot for his recovery. The shoot would take 20 weeks and with three months left, the director of photography, Owen Roisman, quit. A replacement, Gail Tattersall, came in to finish cinematography but wound up in a hospital, unable to complete the job. That left Sonnenfeld taking on director of photography duties as well as directing, which increased his stress levels. Sonnenfeld's wife then became ill and he had to fly to New York from Los Angeles to see her. And this isn't even the end of the tales of woe, because, you know, Wednesday's child is full of woe and all that, for this movie. And the fact this movie is as great as it is, is a true testament to the skill on screen and off. But let's kind of segue and talk about the on-screen talent, because this is arguably a movie that lives and dies on its cast. 
And I literally adore every single piece of casting in this movie. The sublime and wonderful Angelica Houston simply is Morticia Adams. Originally, Cher was wanted by the studio, but Rudin and Sonnenfeld both wanted Houston. They didn't want any one actor to overshadow the production, but mostly that while Houston fit the bill physically, being tall, thin and striking to look at, they also wanted actors who could play comedy without playing comedy. Houston, who had grown up reading Charles Adams cartoons, pretending to be Morticia as a child, had starred in The Witches the previous year and didn't feel like she needed to make another family-friendly film. And I say that despite me being petrified of The Witches since childhood. It's a movie that I refuse to watch ever again. Houston would base Morticia on her good friend Jerry Hall as someone completely comfortable in her own skin, despite Houston herself not being, but more on that in a bit, but as a matriarch who is completely devoted to her family, completely understands every situation, and is always even-tempered, warm, and softly spoken. The late rule Julia, again, simply is Gomez Adams for me. He was attracted to the role because of the character's irreverent portrayal that Gomez finds joy in the smallest things, and even when depressed, is still animated and enticing to watch. Apart, Houston and Julia are brilliant. Together, they're electric. They have chemistry off the charts and it sets the Adams family apart for so many reasons, but mostly that this is a couple who after 10 plus years together, possibly more, we don't know how old they actually are, are still madly in love, still find each other incredibly attractive, and despite the macabre setting, is actually a really positive portrayal of a happy, healthy marriage. They talk, they love, they dance, and they find joy in each other. Gomez and Morticia are couple goals, let's be honest. Rule Julia would do a lot of the sword stunt work himself with Dan Hedaya, and Rule Julia was diagnosed with stomach cancer in 1991, the year this movie came out, and he continued to work until his death in 1994, aged just 54. Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown himself, had just come off playing the legendary scientist in a back-to-back -back filming of Back to the Future Parts 2 and 3, when he signed on to play Uncle Fester. Reportedly, Anthony Hopkins was the first choice for the role, but turned it down. Lloyd also grew up on the Adams cartoons and always loved the character of Uncle Fester, so was astonished when he got the call to play the part. He had serious anxiety on playing him. He was worried about the voice and how to capture the attitude of a character from a comic strip. Originally, the character was going to be achieved with prosthetics to make him look rounder, and Lloyd did a screen test with Raw Julia to test for chemistry and to check the makeup. Lloyd was actually certain he was going to be fired before even getting a chance to star, after he was called into Rudy's office to watch the screen test. The prosthetics aren't working, he was told. It's inhibiting your facial expressions. We're just going to use makeup instead. At six foot one, he was rather tall to be playing a shorter, rounder character. And so simply just bent his knees when on camera to appear shorter. Lloyd would be in makeup for two to three hours to achieve the bold, sunken-eyed look for Fester. Christina Ricci had debuted in 1990's Mermaids with aforementioned Cher and Winona Ryder, and her precociousness and maturity was perfect for the Adams' youngest child, Wednesday. Jimmy Workman's sister also auditioned for the role of Wednesday and was seen waiting for her, and that's how he actually got the audition and the role for Pugsley. And while there are lots more troubles on the production that I am going to go into, I want to quickly mention not only the gorgeous way that they like Morticia, accentuating her cheekbones and eyes, but also what Angelica Houston actually had to go through to become Morticia. For her role as the Grand High Witch in The Witches, Houston was used to hair, makeup and prosthetics. For Morticia, her gothic, almost ethereal look 
was achieved by strapping elastic bands around the back of her head and gluing fabric tabs to her temples to pull the corners of her eyes upwards. A second strap did the same for the lower part of her head. Houston would suffer severe headaches and rashes from their use. Each time they were removed for a comfort break, it took hours to reapply the makeup and wig. The slightest turn of Houston's head could snap an elastic band, causing more repair time and discomfort. Eventually, Houston learned to pivot without moving her head. Additionally, she wore a constructed body corset with padded hips, cinched waist and a pushed up bust, which meant she often struggled to walk. So she learned to glide as Morticia to give her an almost otherworldly feel. Morticia's gowns by costume designer Ruth Myers were designed to give a feeling of aristocracy. 20 plus dresses were designed for the character, which purposely eschewed contemporary fabrics along with miniature versions for Wednesday, the majority of which were all handmade by Mary Ellen Fields, who ran the Bill Hargate costume shop. Even Morticia's three rings were custom made for the character. The clothing designs are so iconic that even now people dress up as Morticia and Wednesday for Halloween, me included, I was Wednesday a couple of years ago, Ruth Myers would be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Costume Design for her work in this movie. And it goes without saying that after filming ended, Houston took all of the fake nails, eyelashes and corsets, basically everything that made her uncomfortable, and burned it. <laughs> Which you would. The effects in the Adams Family were done by Alterian Studios, Tony Gardner started his career apprenticing for Rick Baker, Stan Winston and Greg Cannon, who worked on previous episode Bram Stoker's Dracula as well. And while a lot of the early 90s visual effects look dated to today's standards, the Adams Family's Thing is one effect that still holds up today. In the TV show, Thing was always in a box or on a table so that the actor could hide underneath, but not this thing. Thing was portrayed by part-time magician Christopher Hart, who had extremely long fingers and was very flexible and facile. Visual effects supervisor Alan Monroe wanted Thing to be a character in his own right, with the grace of Fred Astaire, a mean feat for just a disembodied hand. Rather than go with a puppet, which they did on a few occasions in the movie, Thing was going to be a real hand. Shots with Thing were shot in two passes, with and without Christopher Hart, who for his filming would wear a prosthetic wrist over a black sleeve. He would lie face down on a car mechanic's dolly, be pulled around, act out the scene. For shots from behind, he would be positioned above the camera with a prosthetic wrist around his own wrist. His body would then be painstakingly, frame by frame, removed via rotoscoping with the thingless shots pasted in the thing shots with an optical printer. Mechanical hands covered in latex were used when the thing was a golf tee, and when the thing pulled his trolley behind him was a simple mechanical puppet that looked like he was walking, operated by remote control. Other sequences, such as when Thing leapfrogs across a pond from one lily pad to the next, required stop-motion animation, a laborious technique, which I've spoken about many times on this podcast, which a puppet is moved a tiny bit at a time, photographed frame by frame. The leapfrogging, which runs less than 10 seconds, took eight hours to shoot. And with all the on-set drama, you'd expect that everything else was okay, right? Well, this is where everything kind of starts to fall apart for this movie, because Orion Pictures was in financial dire straits. They'd gambled on making expensive movies that hadn't returned enough profit, and Orion were running out of money. With production of The Adams Family still ongoing, Orion decided to cut their losses and sell the movie while it was still being filmed. It wasn't as if The Adams Family was wildly expensive or over budget, but it was Orion's only hope of making money. Luckily for the production, none of this became public knowledge during filming, 
However, Orion didn't actually tell them what was going on. They found out through the press that Orion was selling the Adams family to Paramount for $22 million, a relative bargain considering what the movie would actually gross in the end. However, they sold it to Paramount without the full foreign distribution rights, which meant that most countries outside the US and UK still couldn't get the Adams family on DVD till 2013. Paramount also ended up settling a lawsuit from David Levy, the original creator of the TV show that the movie infringed on his trademark characters. Test screenings would also reduce the length of the Mamushka, which was written by Broadway lyricists Betty Comden and Adolph Green and composer Mark Shaman. And so miraculously, despite all of the issues surrounding this production, we end up with what we get, which is astonishing just generally that a movie that had so many issues behind the scenes can actually look this polished. It's almost like this movie belies any of the issues below the surface. But I want to segue because I want to go into this episode's obligatory Keanu reference. And this is a really, really great one. I'm so proud of this one. Keanu's mother, Patricia, was a costume designer for many famous people. She did costumes for Dolly Parton and David Bowie. They were among her clients. But she also clothed her son Keanu at Halloween. And one year, the young Keanu's mum made him a Cousin It costume. And this is something that Keanu talks about in a specific interview where he's talking about his mum making him costumes for Halloween. And he also mentions that he was Cousin It that year and that it also rained that Halloween. And can you imagine wearing a Cousin It costume and it raining? The Adams Family soundtrack was produced by Hummy Man and Mark Shaman. It was orchestrated by Hummy Man and composed by Duke Ellington, Irving Mills, Mark Shaman and Saxy Dowell. And for all you 90s kids, remember when MC Hammer was a thing? And when every 90s movie had a rap song on the soundtrack? All I have to say is, they do what they want to do, say what they want to say, live how they want to live, play how they want to play, dance how they want to dance. And most of the cast do also star in the video with Hammer and, and do dance. The film actually won a Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Original Song for this particular song, Adam's Groove by MC Hammer. And I will give it one thing though, it may not be a great theme song, but it sure is memorable because I still remember Adam's Groove after 30 years. <laughs> and it's not a good song, but it's very, very memorable. So The Adams Family was released on the 22nd of November 1991, which is almost 30 years ago in the US, the same week as My Girl and An American Tale Foyle Goes West. It would hit the number one spot on its first week, would stay there for a second week before it was dethroned in the third week by Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And The Adams Family is what we'd class as a bit of a sleeper hit. No one thought it would do big business. Hook was expected to be the big family movie of 1991. You can listen to my episode on Hook for more on that. On its $30 million budget, The Addams Family would gross $113.5 million domestically and $78 million elsewhere for a total gross of $109.5 million. It would be a mostly positive hit with critics as well, currently has 65% of Rotten Tomatoes. And as I mentioned, Ruth Myers was nominated for Best Costume Design at the Academy Awards. The movie also picked up a Golden Globe nomination for Angelica Houston, as well as BAFTA Award nominations for Best Makeup and Best Production Design. And just a quick thing on sequels, because I did mention at the start of this episode, there is an animated Adams Family movie that's out. Actually, as this episode is being recorded, Adams Family Values 
is obviously the official sequel to this movie. It is an absolutely tremendous movie and I do definitely plan on covering Adam's Family Values. That movie came out a couple of years after this. There is also an animated TV show that came out in 1992 to 1993, an animated remake called The Addams Family, which came out in 2019. And as I say, a sequel to that is out right now. There is also a Netflix live action show set to debut soon called Wednesday, which has Tim Burton actually as series director. And there also was a director video sequel. It was called Addams Family Reunion. It didn't have any of this cast. I can't say I've seen it. I'll be completely honest, but I've heard dreadful things <laughs> about Adam's Family Reunion. And that's despite it having the legendary Tim Curry as Gomez. And you would expect Tim Curry would be excellent because he's excellent at pretty much every character. But I've heard not great things about Adam's Family Reunion. But Adam's Family Values is absolutely one of those rare sequels that not only meets this movie, it also excels on this movie as well. So Adam's Family Values is definitely something that I want to talk about at some point in the near future. After acquiring the rights from the T and Charles Adams Foundation, they created a musical adaptation with music and lyrics by Andrew Lipper and a book by Marshall Brickman and Rick Ellis. The Adams Foundation reportedly retained control over the show's content and insisted that instead of drawing the plot from the Adams Family television series or films, the production team devised an original musical based solely on Adams cartoons. After a tryout in Chicago in 2009, the musical opened on Broadway in April 2010. It starred Nathan Lane as Gomez and B.B. Newworth as Morticia. The production went on tour around North America in 2011, around the US and Asia in 2013, and around the UK in 2017 and the musical was nominated for two Tony Awards. Let's find out, though, what everyone on social media thinks about The Addams Family. And we're going to start with the patrons of this podcast. And we're going to start with perennial commenter Andy. And Andy says, What is there to say about The Addams Family that hasn't been said before? Outside of Addams Family values, vastly improves upon an already brilliant film. You can say that the decision to lean into its studio-sized budget and create a mysterious and kooky world that lives within a believable existence with our own is a brilliant choice. Gone are the comedic setups of the 1960s sitcom and now appear a genuinely funny movie that laughs at their darkness. The chemistry of Raw Julia and Angelica Houston is off the charts. And in a career of offbeat characters, this will be the one that Christina Ricci will be remembered for. I love this movie for everything it is, even some of my issues with Christopher Lloyd as Fester are merely just quibbles. Can't wait for sequel temper when you cover Adam's family values. Which I will. It's not even a case that I have to. I just really, really want to. I don't know whether it will wait until September. <laughs> if I do sequel temper again next September, I don't think it's one that will wait. So I'm hoping that I can maybe get it in early next year if I can. And as always, if you're interested in geeky news, trivia, a group of wonderful people just having an amazing time podcasting together, then make sure you listen to Andy's podcast, Geek Salad. It is a wonderful podcast. They do all sorts. They do a podcast. They also do a YouTube series as well called Retro Reviews, which is also similarly fantastic. That's actually hosted by two patrons of this podcast. That's Andy and Mike do the Retro Reviews. It is such a brilliant podcast. I've been on their podcast a couple of times and it's always so much fun. So I'll put information in the show notes. You have to listen to Geek Salad. We also have a patron comment from Jack who says, 
Does he? <laughs> I don't think he said that, Jess. Okay. Uh, not Jess. Jack. Jack says... Quite famously, at least in Sequelizer's Law, both of the Adams Family films are favourites of and actions too. I think they're often forgotten and definitely underrated for how clever, funny and well-made and the first film set the standard for a lot of similar films of the era. And Jack is one of the hosts of Sequelizers. It's a terrific podcast that I'm working my way through because there's a lot of episodes to work through. And they are dedicated to making bad sequels good by repitching them, if only the Hollywood execs would listen. I even forgive them for the mauling they gave Grease to. Make sure you check out Sequelizers. I've popped some information in the show notes. And the final patron comment is from my friend Claudia. And Claudia says... I was often teased and shunned by my family because I was the weird one. I loved horror, all the spooky things, etc. I loved the family dynamic and, of course, Wednesday. This was the film that made me realise that I was perfectly fine and it was the pastel-wearing losers who were the problem. It was a literal lifesaver for me. Also, one of my nicknames is Wednesday, so that's cool too. And to be honest, Claudia, I think that's why we're friends because I was the weird one as well. So we can be weird together. Uh, moving over to Twitter, at 30podcast said, Their school play was how I wished I could have entered every school talent show slash open mic night. At Stogs said, Magnificent film, a wonderfully 90s interpretation of both the TV series and the comic strip that is a definitive version of the characters for many people, myself included. And it's one of the rare examples of a film with a sequel just as good as the first. At Garbsey said, The first was on TV again recently and I couldn't help but watch. Class films. Cousin It arriving to the ball, blasting too legit to quit, is one of my favourite movie moments of all time. And at DW Lundberg said, The plot is fairly basic, like every episode of the show, but the actors are perfectly cast. Ricci is already otherworldly as Wednesday, and Houston and Julia's chemistry is off the charts sexy. Definitely lays the groundwork for a much better sequel. No comments on Instagram or Facebook this time around, but as always, a huge spooky thank you to everyone who gave comments on the Adams Family. Growing up, the Munsters were a weekend morning staple for me, and the Adams Family was never really anything that used to feature on TV over here. And perhaps it did, but I just don't remember ever seeing episodes of the Adams Family. It was always the Munsters. So I probably thought that the Adams Family were knockoff Munsters for a long time when I was a kid. But the weird thing is, I didn't know who the Adams Family were, but I knew the Adams Family theme song. Ever since I was a small child, I knew the Adams Family theme song. And so when I saw this movie, and I do remember seeing this movie for the first time, and I just remember loving it immediately, the fact that the Adamses constitute a household in which every social norm is turned on its head just really appealed to me. And I can't say my parents encouraged me to electrocute my brother or chase him with an axe instead of a knife, but overall, this is a family that has serious love and affection for each other. It taps into my childhood, a childhood where I actually really didn't want to fit in because at the time, I just thought I was weird. But now I look back and I'm like, well, actually, weird was cool. Back then, I wanted to be Wednesday. And nowadays, I want to be Morticia. And honestly, in the absence of Keanu, I would happily go for a Gomez. (laughs) The relationship between Gomez and Morticia is loving, respectful, and very sex positive. Gomez worships Morticia. She adores him just as much back. To be that much in love, still, after so many years together, it's actually really nice to be depicted on screen. The familial relationships are weird, but healthy. Children are still encouraged to be children, even if 
It's slightly macabre. Education is prioritised, such as with Morticia speaking to Wednesday's teacher. We've told Wednesday, college first. They have fun parties in this family where they do lots of dancing. And as I say, this is pretty much perfectly cast. Especially Gomez, Morticia, Wednesday and Festa. It seems like all of those actors were born to play these roles. And that's not something that you find in many movies, let alone a movie that's for families. And it's a Halloween movie as well. And just a note as well, it's not often that I mention the Bechdel test on this podcast. I bring it up occasionally because it's something that I'm quite interested in to see if movies do pass the Bechdel test. But this is one of the very rare movies from the 90s that passes the Bechdel test. And really, the way they light Angelica Houston's face still kind of blows me away. The fact that they put so much detail into this movie, that the costume design is so amazing and the effects just still hold up. It's not often that 30-year-old effects hold up, and this does. This is without a doubt one of the best family-friendly Halloween movies out there. And as I say, I'm going to save my Adam's Family Values thoughts for the inevitable future episode that I will do. But mostly, the Adam's Family teaches us that Girl Scout cookies are in fact not made from real Girl Scouts. So we can't say that Hollywood movies don't educate. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Addams Family. If you have enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others. And you can do this by telling your friends and family about this podcast. You can also retweet or like post on social media, or you could leave a, ideally five stars, rating or review on somewhere like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. That always helps. Helps with certain algorithms, especially on Apple Podcasts, because apparently the more times you get left a rating or a review, the more visible your podcast is. I don't know whether that's true, but that's basically the rumour that's going around podcasting. So it would be really nice if Verbal Diorama could be a little bit more visible to people. And if you did enjoy this episode specifically on The Adams Family... I want to recommend a couple of other episodes that I think you might also like. So I'm going to start with episode 62, Scooby-Doo. Now the Scooby-Doo movies are generally not seen as the pinnacle of movie making. However, for Halloween, and if we're talking about a family-friendly Halloween movie, there is nothing more family-friendly than Scooby-Doo. And there is obviously a link, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, between Scooby-Doo and the Addams Family. So the Scooby-Doo movies, they're harmless fun, and I really, really enjoy those movies. So I would recommend Scooby-Doo. The following episode to that was episode 63, and that was Coraline. And now Coraline is slightly more scary, but it's so beautifully crafted. And it's Leica's first movie. Leica are an animation studio that I love to champion on this podcast because they do amazing things with stop motion. And Coraline is kind of teetering a little bit more on slightly scarier. If Scooby-Doo was for maybe five to seven-year-olds, then maybe Coraline would be sort of, I don't know, eight to 12-year-old children. But as a family-friendly Halloween movie, I think Coraline really delivers on so many fronts. I've also mentioned this episode previously in this episode, which is episode 89, Hook. Now, Hook is nothing to do with Halloween, but Hook came out the same year and genuinely love that movie. It's one of my favourite Robin Williams performances. And I know a lot of people have issues with Hook. I don't understand why people have issues with Hook because I think Hook is fantastic. But just as a comparison piece between the two movies and the fact that came out about the same time, I think it's really interesting. Obviously, it's not like I say, it's not really a Halloween movie, but 
It's still fun to watch with kids. And episode 94, Beetlejuice, because there's a lot of comparison between the Adams Family and Beetlejuice, uh, and not just the Tim Burton thing. But if we're talking about family-friendly Halloween movies, Beetlejuice is probably leaning more in that Coraline age group, so maybe eight or nine years plus, because there are some quite scary things happening in Beetlejuice, but it's so much fun, and there's so much underneath the surface of that movie that I think a lot of people forget. So all of those episodes, I had so much fun making those episodes. So please, if you like this episode, I guarantee you will like those episodes too. And as always, give me feedback. Let me know if you think I missed anything. The next episode is a very special episode, actually. The movie that I'm going to be covering for the next episode is Jennifer's Body. And Jennifer's Body is now seen as a feminist horror classic. And joining me on Jennifer's Body, because I'm having a guest for the first time since May. I don't have guests very often, but when this lady became available, I knew I had to have her to talk about Jennifer's body because joining me is the incredible journalist and author, Helen O'Hara. She actually wrote a book on women versus Hollywood and Jennifer's body feels very much the epitome of women versus Hollywood. It was very misunderstood and mismarketed on its release, but it's a truly great female-led, female-written and female-directed horror movie And I can't wait to talk to Helen about it in the next episode. So please come back and we're going to talk about Jennifer's body. If you want to follow me on social media, I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And if you want to support the show financially, you're under no obligation. But if you do, it's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And as always, I like to give a shout out to all of my patrons. So a huge thank you to... Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will and Jack. I can guarantee they are made from real patrons. I have a merch store, verbaldiorama.com slash merch if you want. You can also get in touch with me on email, verbaldiorama at gmail.com, or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and say hi. You can also pop over to filmstories.co.uk. You can buy issues of the magazine, which I write for, and I also write articles online. I have been writing for Film Stories for almost two years now, and it's literally flown by, but I love the work that I do for Film Stories, so please check out the magazine, check out the articles online. And finally... Sic gorgiamus allos subjectos nunc. We gladly feast on those who would subdue us. Not just pretty words. Bye. Hey, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't mean this, right? Just kidding, right? Just kidding, just kidding. I know what to do. <laughs> I'm laughing, right? You're losing your head. I mean, I'm losing my head. Oh! They do what they want to do, say what they want.